Welcome to Every Story Matters, a podcast of the Barnabas Center Richmond. The Barnabas Center is a nonprofit Christian ministry located in Richmond, Virginia, and cities in North Carolina. We exist to partner with local churches supporting their work by providing counseling and teaching to the greater Richmond community, helping people to find hope in the midst of struggle. The foundational model we use in our work is based heavily on the work of Larry Crabb and Dan Allender. We're glad you're here. Basics Part 2, and I'm Kim Green, and I'm here with my friends and fellow counselors, Andrea Mitchell. Hi. And Dan Carson. Hi. We're in a little bit of a different format today. We can see each other, but we're not in the same room because we're one of us is quarantining because we're still in COVID. So uh, last week we spent some time considering um, the idea of dignity and that all human beings have dignity that we each are created with essential longings, and that's part of what it means to be created with dignity, that we have longings for intimacy, to connect with one another, and we have longings for impact, to matter in the world, and that those longings that we carry around um, are part of what it means to be made in God's image, and, and they point to what God is like. And we reference the description of human beings that's found in the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, that in the story of creation, God says, let us make man in our image. Uh, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we reflected on the uh, implication that human beings reflect great dignity as bearers of God, God's image. And we talked about the fact that this is an essential part of us. So um, it's so essential that it can be obscured, but it can't be undone. It can't be eradicated. We also uh, talked about in that text from Genesis that God describes himself as an us. He says, let us make man in our image. And that out of that, he creates not one person, but two. And what that says about God, that he exists himself in community as a we, and so we're created in that relational image, um, that we're created not to be alone. That in fact, that's one of the things, so many things are good in Genesis 1 and 2. But the one thing that said that isn't good is for man to be alone. So we talked about how the word we're using for that right now is a working label for that is intimacy. That it's not good for us to be alone. So we're created for intimacy with other human beings and with God. Um, and I think it, are you, am I right, you guys, that we talked about how we highlighted that it's not good for man to be alone, even even though he has God, it's still not good for him to be alone. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that again, because I was thinking that I remembered us talking about that, and it seems significant, because I think we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves to just be okay with us and God, but even God said, oh, you need other people. Yeah, and that's not a sign we don't trust him or he's not enough for us. He he himself is saying he's not enough. Right. He, he created us for something, more relationship. And so, and then we also talked about the idea of impact. And we noted in that same story in Genesis that the very next thing that God is described as giving man, male and female after he creates them is um, dominion as caretakers over creation, that they can fill the earth. 
and that they can have, um, they can manage it, that they can subdue it. He puts the man in a garden to work the garden. He brings the animals to Adam so Adam can name the animals. All of these are pictures of God giving Adam and Eve purpose, or the male and the female, purposeful work. Um, Ways that the earth is different because they're there, and that's how God wants it. uh, So that's wired deeply into us. For things to be different because we are in the picture. So, and then the last thing that we talked about was the implications of that. Um, we asked, what does it mean to view each person as being an image bearer, as someone who reflects the image of God and has intrinsic longings for intimacy and impact? And how does that affect our relationships and our conversations and our choices? And I remember that right at the end of the conversation, I shared this story that I'd had about an exchange I'd had with a store employee where I had felt some frustration and disappointment because my order had uh, turned out wrong for a gift I was planning. And how our conversation helped me to realize how often it happens that um, we're not thinking about ourselves as image bearers with longings. So I go into a frame shop and I'm just thinking, I'm just picking up, this is just on my checklist, I'm just picking this up. But then a disappointment happens, and that is what alerts me to, oh, actually, this was a lot more layered than I realized. I wanted to get things done in my day. I really care about my dad and want to give this gift to him, and I want to experience connection and intimacy with him. All these ways that even in doing a simple task, I can feel my longings for intimacy and impact. So we're always contending with our deeper longings, whether we're aware of it or not. So that's where we're going to pick up today. That was kind of a long intro. But we're going to start today with that, that very dilemma. Um, so Dan and Andrew, I'd love us to talk about how, um, how do dignified image bearers move about, how do we move around in the world when it's filled with disappointment? And what does the disappointment tell us about who we are? Maybe it's worth pausing just on the word disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I like how you put that, Kim. How, how do image bearers, we've been talking about these longings, but we don't live in a perfect world. And in the same way that we can't get rid of our longings, they're just with us. We're carrying them around everywhere we go. That, Um, one of the things that the Barnabas model helps me to understand is that like my longings are in tension with my experience of the world Mm -hmm. and that creates disappointment for me. I found in teaching this stuff and I wonder if you guys have found the same thing that a lot of people don't they don't think of themselves as disappointed. They have trouble grabbing on to the idea of disappointment as something that they might feel or experience in the world. Or even disappointment as a landing place. Like I might have some sense that I'm disappointed, but it's not worth naming or um, stopping there. Obviously I should 
figure it out. Or, you know, Kim, when you said, like, how do we move about in the world being disappointed? I just instantly thought about all the ways that I scramble, Mm. you know, to avoid feeling disappointment, to plan ahead, to um, bury my head, to ignore things like the list is endless because it doesn't seem like disappointment is a place to land that would be helpful to even acknowledge for some reason. Yes. Yeah, that's right. There's just something in us that wants to skip over it or like you said, get out in front of it or, or not look back. It makes me think about, I know I've told you guys before, my friends, um, when we went through the Barnabas model together, um, my friends from Sudan said that in their language, they don't even have, there's, that word is not a word. Disappointment is not a word. And they've endured a ton of hardship. Um, that was really helpful to me. And I realized, well, we have the word, but pausing to, to be in that word, to feel that and acknowledge that is a whole different story. Yeah. I wonder if part of that is because <clears throat> disappointment is so often related to something being out of our power to do anything about or control. And so we just yeah. want to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And also like, well, I'm powerless here. So mm-hmm. why bother also recognizing that I'm disappointed? Right. I'm powerless or just, I think, a um, a desire to not, be sad like as if acknowledging disappointment was going to mean that that's all you could acknowledge about the world or I really don't want to I don't want things to be that bad Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm not I don't really want to acknowledge any disappointment also if I acknowledge disappointment or tension where does that get me like, um, how does it help me to say, I feel disappointed in the way things are? Like, mm-hmm. almost like a, it's not helpful to acknowledge it because I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that word tension is a good one, too. It's where my mind goes when you say that, Dan, is how in my own life and also as I talk to friends and people uh, in the counseling office, how often, if we admit we're disappointed, it feels like um, if I admit that I was disappointed in any way with my parents, it feels like I'm saying um, I wish they didn't exist, or I don't, they didn't, I don't love them, or I can't hold their dignity and be disappointed at the same time. It feels like, or. Yeah, or we talk, we back ourselves out of it. So if I have it a disappointing experience, I think I shouldn't have had any expectations. Our relationship can't survive me telling you that I feel disappointed. I think, too, that we can be tempted to think all disappointment is avoidable if we had done something different, thought about it differently, expected something different. And I think what the, our model is pointing to is that... <clears throat> Disappointment is an inevitable human experience. Right. Isn't that depressing to say? <laughs> I was going to say, bad. It's yeah. so bad. And we're done. Thank you for joining well, Thank you for joining us. Barnabas, disappointment is an inevitable experience. <laughs>
my dad is from is from Pittsburgh. He grew up in Pittsburgh, and and one of the things that he used to say to us as a joke, as a like when we were complaining that things were hard as kids, is he would say, "Well, life sucks, and then you die, so oh. you can't you can't expect anything more." Uh huh. And I think that is. Um, I think that's some of what people hear us saying when we start talking about disappointment being like an unavoidable reality of living in a fallen world, a world that isn't what it was created to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the other part of your question, Kim, what does disappointment reveal about us? That actually points to hope in some ways is that we're disappointed because we're created with longings and such um, deep and rich and great longings for intimacy and impact. And so when we don't experience it, we feel disappointed, which is appropriate because mm-hmm. we were made for something really great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, even when you said that word inevitable, Andrea, I'm just reminded that um, that's written somewhere in the stuff we do. And I think I I just feel in my own self how much I, even this week, have just done what you said, tried to get around it. There's There's got to be a loophole uh, for me to not experience disappointment. And that part of it is uh, that I, it feels so painful and I don't, I don't know where to go with it. Um, And so another thing I think my propensity to do that reveals about me as a, as an image bearer um, who's in a broken world um, is that I have a propensity, um, Andrea, I like the way you've said it, to ignore God's dependability and security, and to and and the only option feels to me that it is on me. I have to rely on me. I have to ha- have I have to figure out a way out of this. Um, and it doesn't. God's not on my screen. It just doesn't occur to me that that place of disappointment. Mm. He might be there. He might care about it. He might care about me. Mm. It's not even an option in my mind. Yeah, it's almost like when things are going well. It's like ah. Oh because God and he's so good (laughs) and I'm so grateful. And then when things are not going well, it's like, I guess I'm on my own here to figure this out. Yes. I'm disappointed. And even when we go, I just need to be more grateful. Right. A way around the disappointment. Yes. Or even when things are going well, thank you, God, this is what I expected of you. And when things are going poorly, it must mean that you're not taking care of me. And so I will handle this on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even when things are going bad, it must mean that I did something wrong. And so I can't ask God to take care. So, and so now I'm on my own. Yeah. I got myself into this pickle and I've got to get myself out. I think it's, a sh- it's we're ashamed of feeling disappointed. Mm, yeah. Um, like what comes to my mind is um, Andrea, you and I playing pickleball, <laughs> and me just trying my hardest to hit the ball, trying with all my might, and you guys watching me try my hardest, 
it's just so embarrassing to to have tried and failed. And just whiff. And whiff and have someone see that and see that it mattered. Do you know? Yeah, see that you really tried and you were yeah. and then you were disappointed. Yeah. So it's, in, you know, when you trip and fall on a pavement, even, it's embarrassing. It's just, a sh- it's shameful. Yeah, because it feels like I don't even have control over my own body. Yeah. 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 It exposes a lot about us, our, mm-hmm. our, our limitedness, our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And we work so hard to not have that seen to mm-hmm. ourselves and to other people. Mm-hmm. And so then when we bump up against disappointment, it does, it just exposes something in us. It exposes mm-hmm. a, a desire, it exposes our limitedness. Mm-hmm. All of that is suddenly in the open. Mm-hmm. I would, I think I would go one step further and say, not only are we ashamed of our disappointment, but I, I feel in myself a deep contempt for disappointment in my life. Mm-hmm. And I will aim that contempt at you or at me mm-hmm. to mitigate me feeling that the world actually is disappointing, that there's not a way around that. Like, mm-hmm. I would much rather believe that I can make, I am, I am strong enough, capable enough, competent enough, in some way to make the world not disappointing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is infuriating to come up against something that is inevitable. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, I'm helped by the, the words contempt and exposure because it makes me think about how this is described in the third chapter of Genesis. When um, the serpent, um, that there's a serpent in the garden that God has put the man and the woman in. And he comes and says to the woman, you know, um, they have a conversation and and she becomes, um, he says, does God really say you can't eat this fruit? And she says, well, he says we, we can't eat it and we can't touch it and or we'll die. And then he says, no, you surely you won't die. You'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. And there's an accusation in that, that she already actually is like God. Genesis 1 said she was like him. So there's an accusation in it against her, but also against God. And she eats. And then it says their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. So they, you feel this scrambling, uh, that was a good word. I thought Andrea used this scrambling to make, sew together leaves to cover themselves, to cover up this exposure. So you see this covering of exposure, but then you also see later in the conversation with when God comes looking for Adam and says, where are you? Adam says, I was ashamed and I was naked, so I hid. So this covering but then also the woman you put here with me. So this contempt, like it's somebody's fault that I feel this way. Um, so I'm wondering if we can talk about that a little more, about the ways that we hide uh, and the ways that we sh- express our contempt maybe.
one of the things that I want to say, even as we start to talk about that, is how we really view the Bible as descriptive. Mm -hmm. And so when we have a picture of these people in the garden having experienced something, feeling exposed, feeling ashamed, and hiding, that that's a way to understand that that's a picture of humanity that's sort mm-hmm. of what we do so mm-hmm. we can know that we're going to experience that and other people are going to experience that mm-hmm. so when we talk about ways that we hide it's because you know you're just naming right this is inevitable too like we're gonna feel exposed we're gonna feel ashamed and we're gonna hide and right. they did it by covering up, physically hiding somewhere, but also mm-hmm. like you're pointing to one of the ways that they hid and that we often hide is contempt. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hide behind blame. I'm going to hide behind somebody else did something. Mm-hmm. Contempt is sort of a category for a lot of things, right? We can hide behind anger. We can hide behind withdrawal, um, big emotional reactions or... Mm-hmm. muting our emotions mm-hmm. coming smaller in that way just sort of mm-hmm. moving out of the presence the present mm-hmm. moment mm-hmm. yeah thank you for saying all that and using that word um, in terms of orienting to think about ways we can find ourselves on the page of that story and see oh that is describing something about what I experience in the world and I don't need to make that not true so what else would you guys say about ways we we cover we try to cope with the exposure that is inevitable that we're going to feel i think our model has been really helpful for me personally in having a lens to understand that like okay we have these longings but we're also we don't live in eden anymore and so that to me, looks like, what do you do with that? What do you do with trying to manage what you're saying, Kim, like coping with the world? And some of it seems like, uh, if I can be really good at this thing, if I can be a great athlete or really great at my job, if I can succeed in some way, that that will offer me a covering. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be able to manage disappointment because I I won't be disappointing. I will succeed. Um, some of it is lying, um, and and just the I think more and more coming to realize like how often tell stories about people in our life, about ourselves, uh, about broader narratives, groups of people. Um, that we have a human seem to have this ability or desire to figure out a narrative that is, that works mm-hmm. and that is convenient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do y'all think of that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the word that comes to my mind when you talk about the energy that you expend doing those things, lying, inventing a narrative, figuring out a formula. I I think the word that comes to my mind is strategy and the ways that we talk about strategies are an attempt to get what we want and to avoid what we fear. So when you talk about, like, for instance, a person 
determining they're going to be a successful person. That for them, that's what it would mean to get something they want and to avoid what they fear, which is maybe being disappointing themselves uh, or being disappointed by someone. Yeah, so that's what comes to my mind is uh, the ways that we develop strategies for that. I'm wondering if you guys can, if we can just talk about other, other ways we might recognize a strategy when we saw one in ourselves or in somebody else. I want to reiterate what you were just saying about our use of the word strategy, because mm-hmm. in the Barnabas model, it's a significant um, concept. And, you know, sort of in general in the world, strategies aren't necessarily negative. But in our context, we're kind of talking about a strategy as a way to, like you were saying, get what we want, avoid what we are afraid of, which is sort Mm -hmm. of exposure or not having intimacy, not having impact, right? We want to avoid that to get what we want. And the way that we do that is independently. So we ignore our dependence on God and we take Mm -hmm. it into our own hands to try to make life work. So when we talk about strategy, really, that's what we're talking about in the Barnabas model. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for highlighting that, Andrea. I think particularly because um, I think in in sort of the in the Christian tradition, I think that's something that we often overlook, and we tend to think that sin is about behavior, and we skip this step of realizing that it, it runs deeper than that to this denial of what's actually true which is it's not like i'm choosing to be dependent or i'm not going to be independent we are actually dependent the state we find ourselves in is in this denial that that is actually the case yeah when we talk about sin we're talking about how we are trying to ignore consciously or unconsciously Mm -hmm. how dependent we are on god Mm -hmm. the reality of who we are who God is, on multiple layers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so strategy, in way, I'm glad that you clarified this, is when we talk about that word, we're talking about what arises out of that denial. Are these attempts to get what we want and avoid what we fear because we believe we're on our own? I had a seminary professor say, oh, she just asked us to consider who are you when you don't get what you want? Mm. I think that's a that's a good way in to beginning to understand strategies. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. My strategy, I, the way that I ended up answering that question uh, was, I'm I'm really nice. When I don't get what I want, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And I had a counselor ask me, how is it that you're always fine? Huh. How is it that nothing ever seems to really bother you? Mm-hmm. And I had never considered the, I had never considered that my niceness or kindness could be a strategy, could be a way of making life work. Like I could, I could subvert some of life's disappointments um, 
if I was nice enough to people, if they liked me and I wasn't that disappointed. What got exposed through counseling and also through just some more questions, learning about some of this material is that I really grew up thinking um, if I could be nice enough that I could make life work. Uh huh. I don't think I would have attached that. I was a, I was a Christian. I, I don't think I would have attached that to um, I'm trying to make life work apart from God. But there was an area, there was some commitment in my niceness to not depending on him. Mm-hmm. I will not tell you how I actually feel about this mm-hmm. um, because that's not safe. Mm. What I will do is be nice enough for you to like me and for everyone to like me. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, uh, you know, what that points to on some level, it too is like my thoughts and my feelings about things and how I'm impacted by people doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And what does that say about the one who created you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For you to say, no, I. I shouldn't, I'm just not going to be impacted by the world and I'm going to try to minimize my impact in the world as if it doesn't matter and I'm just fine. Mm-hmm. 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 Like I'm a placeholder in the world. Yeah, and I, I don't think that I would have ever said niceness is such a hard thing to identify as something that's actually harming me as a a commitment for independence rather than dependence. Mm -hmm. But it was a way for me to live safely, to get what I want and avoid what I don't want. Mm -hmm. Other categories that I think about, mine's niceness, and I know others have picked that strategy too, but um, other strategies that I see are uh, named before like this a commitment to being super good at something mm-hmm. um, that if I can achieve, uh, if I can succeed, that that will save me. Um, One that I feel like is really common and popular in America, um, particularly I would say in um, sort of white culture is a busyness and an achievement driven way of being that feels like, this is what it means to be successful. And so I'm, if I'm busy, it means I'm important and I'm valuable. And if I'm not busy and life isn't crazy all the time, I'm insignificant. Mm -hmm. Right. So you see there that I'm, I'm determining whether or not I'm significant. Mm -hmm. I'm determining whether or not I'm valuable Mm -hmm. and I'm doing it based on a random model that our culture has mm-hmm. bought into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when you say that, I think about this time that um, my husband was in Africa and a group of eight guys were getting off a, a little prop plane that landed in a field and they got off and the Africans that were there to greet them told them later that as soon as they got the plane, all the Africans said, here come the Americans. And my husband said to them, how did you know they were, you were American? And they said, 
Oh, because of all the anxiety coming off of your shoulders, we can just tell how you walk that you're the American. <laughs> because there's this feeling of I have to be, you know, uh-huh. I have to be in charge of this. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that strikes me, I would be curious what you guys think about this, is that part of what often happens in the counseling room is that um, people, one of the things of the many that people are coming in and contending with is that they hit things where their strategies don't, they're not working for them or they're not, they're, they are warring against relationships somehow. Um, What do you mean? What do I mean they're warring against relationships? So like, for instance, Dan, you're a great example of the niceness that it, for a time it gets you what you want and helps you avoid what you fear. But for the people that are in relationship with you, they begin to experience the ways that that is the number one commitment. Yeah. And so any, a longing to connect with you is thwarted by that, actually, even though underneath it you do have that longing. I could not understand why my wife was upset that I wouldn't fight with her. Mm-hmm. But she, she was upset that I wouldn't fight with her. But more than that, she sensed that... I wasn't telling her how I was really doing or feeling. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of trouble understanding why she was asking me to contradict my strategy. Yeah. I kind of thought she would join me in it when we got married. Yeah. Yeah. I think we tend to think that, um, so another word we use for this is our relational style. We tend to think that's the best thing we have to offer, like our competence or our niceness. For me, I would say one is just caretaking, that that's like, what do you mean? Like, you're welcome. That's like my best. I'm giving you my best thing. Because the ways we have denied what's really happening, what we're really experiencing, uh, we're just not even aware that we're denying it. And so it really does feel like that's the best thing I have to offer. Yeah, let's talk for a second about relational style because, you know, that's another um, pretty significant concept in our model. And, you know, what we mean when we talk about a relational style is the way that you relate to other people, the way that people generally experience you, and... um, you know, our relational style is something that we develop starting from a really young age because mm-hmm. it's a way that we learn to cope with stress and disappointment and not getting what we want, things that are hard. We learn to cope to help us survive and get through that. But the ways that we learn to cope become, like you were talking about with Dan, a commitment to a way of being in the world. So mm-hmm. if being nice or being competent or being funny worked to sort of get you out from under the stress of what you're experiencing, the trauma of what you're experiencing, then you're going to keep doing that. We are, we keep doing that because it works for us so well. And that's okay until like you were just pointing to, we're now in a relationship with someone where we think, okay, we're going to laugh at all the hard things to get through it. And you're, partner is like, why are you laughing at my pain? Right. And it, it feels counterintuitive to actually talk about it and feel it 
because maybe I grew up just laughing and that's how we coped, but that's not how they coped. And we're missing each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other relational styles that we've talked about, some that we see are kind of the, the personal commitment to the kind of dominating relational style. One of the other ones that we've talked about is the strong, assertive relational style, which are people that really have made a commitment to be the most powerful people in the room Mm -hmm. or in a situation. People who willingly or unwillingly, and that's an important that's an important caveat, willingly or unwillingly, like um, consciously or unconsciously is maybe a better way of saying that, dominate. Mm -hmm. Um, Either in, in quiet ways or in loud ways, they tend to dominate the people that are around them or situations that they're in. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a desire to be or appear strong. And then maybe on the other end of the spectrum is people who uh, are committed to not being strong. People who have a commitment to needing help mm. all the time. Mm. Who really demand that um, that you come through for them because they aren't capable of coming through for themselves. Mm. It's a, yeah, that relational style is a real denial of agency. You know, it's that attitude kind of like, oh, there's not really anything I could do to help here, but mm-hmm. I think you probably could. And mm-hmm. all of these are, it's, a, it's tricky because all of these have strengths. There's, there's a lot of, giftedness coming from people who are competent and who are soft or who, you know, recognize powerlessness and also um, lean into their agency. That's not what we're saying at all, but to, to recognize where it becomes less of a using this gift in the world to bring connection and understanding and intimacy and where it becomes a tool to avoid disappointment, um, to feel powerful in ways that um, are just really, there's a difference. There's a difference between the way that we bring this that's helpful and a part of our gifting and strength and our talent in a way that it becomes something we use and rely on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys, can I read this quote that that reminds me of, Andrea, as you say that? Just because I like how that speaks to this juxtaposition of um, there's there's gifting in all these things, and you could if you drill down, you would see our dignity. But there's also there's dignity and a denial of well, really a denial of our dignity, a denial of this long these longings we have and the vulnerability that we have in the world. So anyway, this uh, so I want to read this quote from um, an old friend that has. Uh, passed away, actually, uh, whose name was Joe Bowserman. He says, fear is the nuclear core we try so hard to protect with a fortress of safety and a multitude of external security features. We build our personalities around this fortress of safety, and we live our lives separated from the most useful and informative data we could have. The awareness that we are needy, vulnerable, dependent, alone and longing for intimacy and safety with God. That is our deepest identity. 
most of our human crises can be handled by our personalities in ways that keep us from ever learning this truth. But the truth remains the truth, whether we are learning, whether we are willing to look and learn or not. We are all to greater or lesser degree willing to live a life of unconsciousness and delusion rather than face this truth. It is so much less life and so much less love. I just love that picture of this, just the, I don't know, that I feel sad as I read that, but also I think it speaks so well to how frenetically we try to protect ourselves from the data that actually connects us most deeply to our dignity and to the presence of God with us in the world. It reminds me of so much of the work um, that I do with couples that um, is like incredibly simple and so, so hard. And it's over and over again, um, asking uh, one of the people in the marriage to, to say, um, I will ask them, you know, I hear you blaming your husband for not doing something. I'm wondering if you might actually ask him or just tell him what it is that you were wanting, right? Do you see that, sh that tiny yeah. shift of you didn't do something pointing outward to, I'm going to tell you something that's true about me. I wanted something here. Yes. And the number of times that we go through this <laughs> in di different variations of the question, could you try to say again what you wanted here? Well, what is it that you mean when you say it? And the number of different ways that a person will get around naming that very thing when we drill down, well, I wanted you to make the coffee like you said you were going to, okay? Because what were you hoping for? Well, that they would bring it to me. Oh, and what did you want? Ultimately, well, I wanted to connect and spend time together. And really recently, um, I've had a couple, I, we, I was doing this with someone and the person I was working with in that moment said, this is so hard. Yes. <laughs> and I just said exactly that. I said, I know. <laughs> It's like taking those leaves off. It's just this feeling of like, please don't make me do that. That's right. You'll walk away. This just terror. That's right. And also because I'm I'm having to name the thing that I really, really want that actually we both, everybody wants. Yes. <laughs> yes. But the fear of not getting it is so great. I'd rather not risk asking for it. Yes. In order to actually get close to you, I have to name something of my desire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have to own something of my dignity. Mm -hmm. I am safer. It feels like I'm safer if I keep both my dignity and you at bay. Mm -hmm. But to actually move towards you, I have to understand a longing in myself or mm -hmm. follow a longing in myself to be mm -hmm. connected. Mm -hmm. 
It's mm-hmm. incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Well, I and I think we we believe that it's unsafe. I think we can be tempted to believe we're safe or not to. But I really believe, or I would never invite people to do this, and I think this is true for you all too, I really believe that we can trust God when he says, this is good. This is mm-hmm. good for you to come out mm-hmm. from hiding mm-hmm. because you, you actually are safe because of me. And so it, it, can be, it might be painful at times. It might feel really scary. And mm-hmm. also, don't believe the lie that you're safer behind that bush hiding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Or that, yeah, I love how you say that. And I just, when you guys were just having that exchange just then, I had this image that we see in Genesis 3 of God walking through the garden looking for the man and the woman and calling out to them. And so this sense of what does that say about our value in him that we are worth finding? What cues can we take from that? Like you said, Andrea, that this isn't the, that that we're not stuck there, that we don't have to stay stuck there, that there's a deeper truth than that. Does that feel like a good place to pause? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Next time we'll talk more about that. The hope. I think that would be great. I think Kim, at one point you had said, um, you had phrased it when we were talking about what, our last podcast and gosh, what do we want to offer people? What is it that we can cling to in this time? And all this stuff that's like heavy and hard and I don't know, messy. And I just love how you said, um, yeah, let's talk about what's the hope for dignified people who are afraid and hiding. So we'll start there. We'll start with, thank you guys. Good to be with you. Thanks everyone for listening. See you next time. Thank you everyone for joining us. If you're interested in learning more about the content we've talked about in any of these podcasts or more about the Barnabas Center in general, we'd love for you to check out our website at barnabasrva.org, B-A-R-N-A-B-A-S-R-V-A.org. We'd love for you to check out our training groups where we really go deeper into the material that we've been talking about. We invite you to consider this material in light of your own story. So thanks again for joining us.